it was fairly obvious that whoever this person was went there to kill, did not go there to talk, to negotiate, to ask questions. Robbery wasn't a motive. There was money sitting out. Sexual assault was not the motive. The women had not been molested in any way. It was obvious that the purpose of this act was to kill. That was Sumter County Chief Deputy Gary Brannon describing a double murder that occurred 18 years ago this week in tiny Terrytown. The grisly murders were linked to another slaying that took place two days earlier in a small community 1,600 miles north. Details of that shocking story are coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the recently overturned death sentence of a former prison escapee out of Louisiana who was convicted, along with two others, of kidnapping and killing a Florida State University graduate student in 2010 and dumping his body eight years ago near Interstate 95. After that, I'll discuss the murders of Margarita Ruiz and her daughter, Hope Wells, who were shot and stabbed inside their home off State Road 50 in Terrytown. The killings were witnessed by Ruiz's grandchildren, who were only one and three years old at the time. After more than six years and one astonishing not guilty verdict later, the killer was finally arrested. He now sits on death row. I'll have many special guests for that segment, so stay tuned for that. Coming up, the story of the latest convicted killer removed from Florida's death row. On Thursday, the state Supreme Court unanimously overturned the death sentence of a former prison escapee convicted of killing a Florida State University graduate student in 2010, ruling that prosecutors had agreed they would not pursue the death penalty if the killer agreed to help in the investigation. The News Service of Florida reported that the justices upheld the first-degree murder conviction of 41-year-old Kentrell Ferranti Johnson and ordered that he served life in prison in the slang of 29-year-old Vincent Bender. Johnson, along with Quentin Marcus Truehill and Peter Marcus Hughes, went on a crime spree after escaping from a Louisiana detention center and kidnapped Bender as he walked home from a gathering with friends on April 2nd, 2010. Bender disappeared and his debit card was used in various parts of the state. Johnson and the other defendants were arrested 10 days after the kidnapping in Miami after they tried to make a withdrawal from Bender's bank account. After Johnson was returned to Tallahassee, the state attorney's office in Leon County agreed not to seek the death penalty on the condition that Johnson helped lead investigators locate the body. Johnson held up his end of the deal, but the deal was never put in writing. Johnson drew a map that led to Bender's body, which was lying in a field in St. John's County near Interstate 95. The victim had been hacked and stabbed to death. Johnson was charged in the murder in St. John's, which is in the 7th Judicial Circuit, the same circuit that includes Daytona Beach. Leon County is in the 2nd Judicial Circuit. Prosecutors in St. John's sought the death penalty, and a judge ruled that the agreement reached with the state attorney's office in Leon was not binding in the other circuit. But the Supreme Court ruled Thursday that the agreement should have spared Johnson from a death sentence. Truehill is the only one of the three convicted in Bender's murder who remains on death row. Hughes took a plea deal and was sentenced to life in prison. R.J. Larizza, the state attorney for the 7th Judicial Circuit, did not reply last week to a request for a comment. Coming up, the story of a murder of two women 18 years ago in Sumter County, which occurred in front of a one-year-old boy 
and a three-year-old girl. The evidence from the case was linked to another murder in faraway Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, which had occurred less than 48 hours earlier. My special guest for that segment will be Sumter County Chief Deputy Gary Brannon, Assistant State Attorney Pete Magrino, Eau Claire County, Wisconsin Circuit Judge John Tyson, and former News Journal reporter Richard Kahn. Chippewa Falls Emergency Center. Yeah, the blood all over us is cold and it's covered up with a blanket. Fall from our bed. I don't know what happened. Stay on the phone with me and I'm going to send the ambulance out there, but don't hang up, okay? Okay. That was Alfred Marquardt, who found his wife's body inside their garage in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, on March 13, 2000. His wife, Mary Jane, had been shot and stabbed. Her body had been covered by a comforter that had been pulled off her bed in an upstairs bedroom, indicating the killer both knew the victim and the layout of the house. A couple weeks later, after the couple's son, Bill Marquardt, had gone missing, he turned back up at his cabin in the woods, located one county over from his parents' house. He was the lead suspect in his mother's homicide. A SWAT team was there in case of a standoff. He wound up surrendering peacefully. Someone from the Chippewa County Sheriff's Department asked Bill Marquardt where he had been after his mother's murder. He said he had been on vacation. More than 1,600 miles southeast of Chippewa Falls is Terrytown, an unincorporated area of Sumter County, Florida, known mostly for its rich timber supply and for cattle farming. It's located about an hour west of Orlando. State Road 50 is a major highway that cuts through the heart of central Florida and stretches from Wikiwachi to the west to Titusville to the east. The road also runs directly through Terrytown. A rickety old cottage, severely damaged from its exposure to the unrelenting Florida sun, sits not too far off State Road 50. Today it's empty, but during the morning of March 15, 2000, it was the scene of a gory double murder, one that was witnessed by two children, one so young that he was just learning how to form words, and another who was still more than a year from entering kindergarten. The murders happened less than 48 hours after Mary Jane Marquardt was killed. The two Terrytown victims were murdered in the same fashion, with the same two weapons. A droplet of blood left behind by the killer was the only clue, and the only witness to the crime was a three-year-old girl who was hiding underneath the dining room table while the killer went on his rampage, and her one-year-old brother, who was sitting in plain view in the living room while his grandmother and aunt were being slaughtered. The victims were 72-year-old Margarita Ruiz and her daughter, 42-year-old Esperanza Wells. Assistant State Attorney Pete Magrino, who prosecutes homicides across a three-county region that includes Sumter, told me that the heinous nature of the slayings made this a standout case for investigators. Oh, brutal. Brutal, to say the least. It, obviously, both the, the women were, were, were terrorized. It took nearly seven years before Bill Marquardt would be connected to the double murder. More on that later. Both Magrino, as well as Sumter County Chief Deputy Gary Brannon, who was a lieutenant at the time, as well as Deputy Commander of the Sheriff's Office's Major Crime Unit, recalled the details that were pieced together by crime scene investigators. Here is Brannon talking to me about the estimated time of the murders. Well, we believe it was very early in the morning, probably, uh, if I remember correctly, um, Pam Ruiz dropped the two children off at around 7 o'clock. We believe it wasn't too much longer after that. There was some evidence that she was just cleaning up from the breakfast that she had cooked for the children, uh, Mrs. Ruiz. We believe probably between 8 and 9 that morning. Mark Wart rolled up onto the property in a green Thunderbird. Authorities think he began shooting as soon as Margarita saw him through the rear screen door to the kitchen. He parked his car, and uh, Paige was able to tell us it was a green car, and walked up to the back door, which was a screen door, and it was held shut by little eye hooks. It immediately began 
shooting when Mrs. Ruiz came to the door to see what he wanted. Uh, he shot her twice there, and she ran back into the house. Uh, that door entered into the kitchen. Uh, so he snatched the door open, which wasn't a big issue because that eye hook was just held in the wood with a little, you know, the screw end of it, and chased her into the bedroom where Hope was and shot her again. And this time he shot her in the back and hit her in the spine, uh, and she immediately fell on the side of the bed. Subsequent to Larcourt making entry there, Miss uh, Ruiz started to, to run from the kitchen through the dining room, and, it, it, and it's a small cracker house. Um, dining room, living room, back to a bedroom as Marquardt was chasing Margarita Ruiz through the home. He discharged another round and, and at or about that time is when Miss Wells, who had been in bed because she was ill, got up. She was shot and she went down and then after the the shots were fired, he then stabbed both of the women about the head and upper chest throat area. Here is Brannon describing in more detail what took place in that bedroom. At that time, Hope was coming out of the bed off the foot of the bed, and they were literally toe-to-toe, and he shot her in the face. And that's when he uh, killed her instantly, naturally. Then he got the knife out and started stabbing him in the neck, Mrs. Ruiz three times, and Hope Wells seven times. And then he just turned around and walked out. Very little evidence was left behind by the gunman. But there was one spot of blood inside the house recovered by the forensics team. Aside from the some of the blood that was on his tennis shoes, during during the stabbing, he somehow must have injured himself because on the pathway or the doorway area between the living room and, and the bedroom, there was another, there was some blood were covered there during the crime scene work and that contained a, a mixture of of his his DNA in with both the victims. Paige Wells is now 21 years old. She, along with Magrino and Brannon, were interviewed recently for a television show on investigation discovery called True Conviction. Paige also appeared on an episode of Megan Kelly Today. She told the host she still remembers everything about that day. While she couldn't fully comprehend it at the time, she recalls hiding behind a curtain at one point and then hiding under the tablecloth-covered dining room table once the violence started. Here she is describing what she witnessed on True Conviction. I remember I ran behind a curtain in the kitchen because I thought it was somebody I knew. Like, you know, I was going to jump out and scare him, but... um that's when the gunshots were fired. So I remember running underneath the table and just the commotion that went on after that, like the running and the yelling and stuff like that. I knew something wasn't right. I just didn't know the severity of it at that time. After the killer left, Paige looked out the window and saw a green car leave the property toward State Road 50. Whatever she saw of the attacks themselves, she watched it unfold underneath the tablecloth, a pretty small viewing radius. At the time, the scared three-year-old told law enforcement the killer was a black male. Paige didn't call 911. She didn't know how. Her aunt and grandmother lay dead inside the bedroom. Blood was pooled and splattered all over that room. There was blood in the kitchen. A girl not even nursery school age and her baby brother were left alone in that house for hours. Every workday around lunch, Hope Wells' husband, Robert, would call to check in on his wife. It was a daily routine. On this day, Paige answered the call. When Robert Wells heard his niece's voice, he immediately assumed something was wrong. When Paige uttered something about blood inside the house... He called 911. Wells used a cell phone. In 2000, most people didn't have cell phones, especially in that part of Florida. Wells worked in Eustis, located in Lake County about 35 miles northeast of Terrytown, 
When he called 911, it went to a Lake County emergency operator. Then he had to be transferred to Sumter. Once the confusion was over, Sumter County Sheriff's deputies got the dispatch call. The original incident report from the first deputy on the scene stated, quote, While en route, dispatch advised that a young girl was present and somebody was bleeding there. The scene was far worse than what was described in that original call. A detective showed up at the scene and removed the scared children from the house and put them inside his squad car. Brannon was one of the first senior officers to respond. By the time he arrived, by the time he arrived, he had already been told it was a murder scene. Even still, he wasn't fully prepared for what he was about to see. It was perhaps the worst murder case he ever had to investigate. Yes, it's terrible, and it's not something that we routinely investigate in that rural part of the county, or any part of the county for that matter. I mean, we have our moments here, but uh, violence to that extent for no apparent reason is not something that we routinely see here. It took a while before Robert Wells got to the house. The children were outside with a family member, and deputy cruisers were everywhere on his property. He had a sense of doom during the drive, and his worst fears were realized when he got home. Here he is talking to Investigation Discovery about the images from that day that remained etched in his memory. I jumped out of the vehicle, and I looked over at Ruben, and uh, he was standing there with two kids, and he looked at me, and he shook his head. <laughs> and I knew something was wrong. So I started running up to the house, but the policeman wouldn't let me go in the house. Yeah, they said they, they didn't say how, but they said they were gone. The killer was Bill Marquardt, but nobody in Sumter County had heard of him, and no link to him and the murders of Margarita Ruiz and her daughter was anywhere close to being uncovered. So we had no fingerprints to submit for automated searches. We had no DNA to submit for an automated search. This was a true mystery whodunit murder. The sheriff's office knew early on it wasn't going to be an easy case to solve. Nothing was coming down the pipeline that was putting investigators any closer to a suspect. The media were all over it, and Brannon had no answers for them. The pressure was already having an effect on him. I remember um, about a week into it, doing an interview for a television station. I remember thinking then, I mean, what am I going to tell these people? There, there's nothing to tell them. We don't know any more today than we did standing out there in the yard of that house when it happened. I remembered how bad I felt that I couldn't give people the answers they wanted and they needed and they deserved. A week or two after that, Mark Ward showed up at his cabin. A neighbor had tipped off law enforcement in Eau Claire County that the suspect was back home in Wisconsin. By this time, at least one search warrant had already been executed at his property. No knife and no gun had been recovered because Mark Ward still had the weapons with him during his Florida trip. One thing investigators did find was a blood-soaked tarp. Marquardt had not only killed three people in different ends of the country in less than 48 hours, he had also slaughtered hunting dogs soon before his murderous spree had started. John Tyson is now an Eau Claire County Circuit judge. In 2000, he was a young defense attorney who was still years away from becoming the Chippewa County District Attorney. Here he is talking to me about the start of Mark Ward's life as a criminal defendant. While he is in Florida, Eau Claire County, the murder had occurred in Chippewa County, Wisconsin. In, in Eau Claire County, Wisconsin, they go and look at his residence, which is a cabin out in the woods. They locate blood, and it turns out to be animal blood, and a neighbor reports a burglary during which the perpetrator broke into the residence and hunted down several dogs within the house. He then is arrested in Eau Claire and he's, he's formally charged. Ultimately, 
He pleads, uh, or he, he uh, declares that he's incompetent. In Chippewa, the incompetency ruling stands. In Eau Claire County, the judge allows prosecution to proceed. The case proceeds. He is convicted in Eau Claire County on animal cruelty. However, he is found not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. Wisconsin law states that someone found not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect in a felony animal cruelty case can be ordered to serve up to 75 years in a mental hospital. Tyson explained to me that Markwart could have been released after a few years if medical evaluators believed his mental health was fully restored. Absolutely. It's, it's not unlike, I think people can relate to, like the John Hinckley issue. John Hinckley was never convicted of attempted uh, assassination of President Reagan. He was, he was found not guilty by reason of mental disease or defects. Thereafter, he can, uh, it's usually either every six or 12 months, petition for either release or conditional release and in most instances, because those people are put in a stabilized situation, they're medicated, they're treated, they're counseled, in most cases, those, those types of people are eventually found safe to have weekend releases and then maybe even go home but, but still be monitored. After spending a few years in the hospital, a judge in Chippewa County ruled that Marquardt was fit to stand trial for the slaying of his mother, Mary Jane Marquardt. The rookie district attorney assigned to that case was none other than John Tyson. It was going to be his first murder trial. It seemed he had a strong case. The evidence pointed to no one other than Bill Marquardt. But once the opening statements were finished, it was clear Tyson was going to have to overcome a lot to win a guilty verdict. There was the issue of the search warrants. Three were executed at Marquardt's cabin. The first one uncovered no murder weapon. That was understandable, considering Marquardt was still in possession of them and still on his quote-unquote vacation. The second one was executed after his arrest. The knife that he had used was confiscated when he was arrested because it was in his pants pocket. However, the 9mm Smith & Wesson that he used on his mother, the actual killing weapon, was not found at the house during the second search warrant. Law enforcement went back a third time and found the gun. One of the investigators rocked the refrigerator back and forth and heard a thud. It was pulled out and the gun was found on the floor. Ballistics testing confirmed it was the one used to kill Mary Jane. But defense attorneys jumped on that and suggested to jurors that the weapon was planted there. To make matters worse, Marquardt's father, Alfred, testified that he had sneaked into the house between the second and third search warrant. He owned the property, so he was allowed to be there. No one accused him of planting the gun at the scene, but defense attorneys did say that if an older man like Alfred could easily get inside that cabin, it would be easy to surmise that police could do so, or anyone else, perhaps even the killer or killers. Another issue was the knife. It had the DNA of four people on it. It had not only Bill and Mary Jane Marquardt's blood on it, it also had traces of blood from two other people, and no one at the time knew who those blood samples belonged to. The defense pounced on that. They conveyed to jurors that the unknown blood samples could have belonged to the killers. That left more room for doubt. There was a third problem for Tyson. The defense wanted to admit into evidence letters written by an inmate to Markworth. At least one of them was as threatening as it was profane the judge allowed the letters to be entered as evidence. We had a witness who had communicated with Bill Markworth. The witness was in prison. He had communicated through letters. The witness committed suicide years before my trial. The judge allowed the letters from the deceased witness to come in. The defense opined as to what the meaning of those letters were, and his basic sentiment was that this guy in prison sent killers to get Bill, and 
Bill wasn't there, so they killed his mother, which gives at least some sort of plausible explanation that Bill didn't do it. Jurors deliberated for a few hours or so. They came back with a not guilty verdict. It was shocking. In retrospect, Tyson believed jurors had a lot to consider. From, from a prosecutorial standpoint, those are very difficult facts. If the juror's charge is to find beyond a reasonable doubt, you know what? I've never said this before. There's a part of me that actually respects those jurors. Do I think he didn't kill his mom? Absolutely not. He killed his mom. But did those jurors do the right thing? Well, you know what? There was a heck of a lot of doubt that that defense, based upon the facts, was able to throw out there. That's what he's saying now. But in May 2006, after the verdict was read, he was reeling from it. He called his wife, who was crying over the phone. Tyson explained to me it wasn't just that she had sympathy for him over the loss. She knew what he knew, that he was going to have to carry the burden of suffering a very public defeat in a very small community. It didn't take long for the local newspaper to publish a story about the history of the Chippewa County District Attorney's Office. For a decade or more, it had a history of ugly defeats, even though Tyson had only been in office for a matter of months at that point. But he told me there was some saber-rattling going on, and the questions of who was going to run against Tyson once his term was up were already being heard throughout town. I mean, I live in a small community. We don't have a ton of first-degree homicides, and nobody really cares about the facts. They care about wins and losses. So it's not looking good for me as a young lawyer. Tyson got a couple messages from one particular caller in the days and weeks after the trial. It was from the father of the inmate who had written all those threatening letters to Markwart while behind bars. The first time this man called, Tyson didn't want to talk to him. He asked one of his subordinates to take the call. The second time he called, he agreed to talk to him. Tyson only remembers the man's last name, Fitz. He figured Mr. Fitz was calling to complain that his son's name was dragged through the mud by the defense at trial, and Tyson didn't do enough to stop it. Tyson took the call, ready to face the music. Here was how that call went. Mr. Fitz, let me tell you, there is not one person in law enforcement or in my office who believes that your son had anything to do with this homicide. I apologize. I apologize for what that defense attorney tried to portray. It's not true, and none of us believe it. He says, yeah, well, I appreciate that. And let me tell you something. That Bill Marfoot is a killer. Because at some point, my son told me something to the effect of Bill, like, killed two other women somewhere. I said, wait a minute. What did he tell your son? I don't know. I don't know. But I know my son is not a killer. And I know that at some point, he told my son that he killed two other women somewhere. The proverbial light bulb turned on. Tyson immediately thought about the blood evidence on the knife. Two unidentified people who were blood-related, or more specifically, mother and daughter, were found on it. And no one had attempted to link those samples to anyone. Well, that was the impetus to start the research, to start taking a look at where and when and how. And, And the logical first step was to say he had a bloody knife, that had his mom, his own, and two unidentified women on it, in his pocket. Let's try to figure out where he had been and if there's anything in that roadmap that is unsolved. Tyson literally pictured a roadmap. Marquardt disappeared after the murder of his mother and was gone for two weeks. He had passed through a lot of places. Here is Pete Magrino talking to me about Mark Ward's course of travel in March 2000. Apparently what had happened subsequent to the killing, the murder of, of his mother, he left in one vehicle, drove south, contacted a friend, of a former drug supplier in Illinois. Eventually he made his way down to Tifton, Georgia, where he had a storage shed there. 
after crossing the Florida-Georgia border, Marquardt went to Disney World. Then he took a windy route to the far southern end of Florida. Got into Sumter County and drove, uh, for whatever reason, west came upon the residence where the the shooting and the stabbing took place. Uh, Then he left and continued south to the Keys, stayed at a KOA campground, I believe it was in Marathon at the time. He stayed overnight there. Those receipts were also found in his car, and then he drove back to Wisconsin. That was the basic geographical area that Tyson had to go on when he started his research into unsolved murder cases. He also knew that at one point, Marquardt had spent an extended amount of time in Texas before he had killed his mother. Before he became a lawyer, he was a librarian. So Tyson wasn't intimidated by long segments of research. He not only could handle it, he probably got some thrill out of it. At some point, he came across a bulletin he had obtained from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement website. The faces of two women were staring at him. Margarita Ruiz and Esperanza Wells. The bulletin stated they were fatally shot by a 9mm handgun and the killer had been spotted driving a green car. However, the two women had different last names and nothing on the bulletin indicated they were related. There also wasn't any mention of a knife being used. Not only that, but the suspect was identified in the release as being a black male. That was what three-year-old Paige had told investigators initially. By this point, the Sumter County Sheriff's Office was six years into its case, and detectives had not made any headway. Some leads were called in, but nothing credible. They were desperate to do something, anything, to gain traction in the investigation. Among the journalists who covered the Ruiz and Wells murder investigation was my friend and former News Journal reporter, Richard Kahn. Before he joined the News Journal in 2011, he had spent time at a couple of papers in Central Florida, and the story behind the arrest of Bill Marquardt is one he still remembers. During his reporting of the case, he learned Brandon and one of his detectives had taken a special trip to Texas. Well, uh, I remember that Jared Brannon had gone, he and another detective had gone to uh, Texas, had gone before a kind of a, I guess you could say a dream team of cold case experts, and they had presented their, you know, basically what they had, and I believe, I remember Brannon saying that um, he was, you know, they were looking for any help they could get, because this, uh, this crime, it kind of vexed them, and uh, the town as a whole, it's a small, tight-knit town. And um, the sheriff, Bill Farmer, uh, I believe lives only a couple miles from the, from the uh, scene of the murder. I remember him saying that it uh, really spooked the town, uh, the fact that they could possibly have, still have a murder in their midst. Brannett admitted to me that he and his investigators were unable to move on from that case. The longer the case remained at a standstill, the more it gnawed at them. Uh, it was something that was on our minds daily, pretty much. Uh, there wasn't a lot in that period of time to take our minds off of it. I mean, we didn't have any other really huge investigations that required a great deal of travel or manpower or anything of that nature. So this was something that was haunting all of us, uh, really wanting to solve that murder. I mean, it was, it was people that were totally innocent, random victims is what it kept looking like to me. They may not have been able to shake their frustration, but Brannon agreed to try something unconventional to shake something out of the investigation. They needed a spark. Among the members of that cold case dream team was a forensic hypnotist. The purpose of hypnotism, at least in the framework of a criminal investigation, is to pull from a witness or victim some vital information hidden deep into that person's subconscious. Brandon wanted Paige Wells to be hypnotized. Her mother wasn't keen on the idea at first, but she agreed. She trusted Brandon. During her hypnosis, Paige recalled seeing the suspect wearing dark pants. 
His skin tone wasn't necessarily dark, just the clothes that he was wearing that day. That opened things up in the investigation. It wasn't a lot, but it was something. Investigators no longer were restricted by the assumption that the suspect was African American. In the spring of 2006, Brandon took a call from a district attorney in Chippewa County, Wisconsin. But that call almost didn't take place. Tyson had to talk himself into it. It is totally against human nature. Call somebody up tomorrow and tell them you think you know how to solve something they have been trying to solve for six years. And and it's interesting to talk to Gary Brandon about that because... It's one of those things, it's like, sir, I'd love to talk to you, but when we get done with this, number one, you're going to think I'm a fool, and number two, we're never, ever going to talk again. (laughs) Try to make that phone call. (laughs) Is that how you, you let off the conversation? Absolutely. Absolutely. After the call was made, it didn't take long before both men knew they could help each other. They both were on a mission, after all, and they were about to find out that their missions overlapped. Here is Brandon's recollection of that call. Well, he started asking me these questions about, well, did you have a murder of two women in March of 2000? And I said, yes, we did. And uh, and he said, well, were the women related by blood? I said, yes, it was mother and daughter. He started telling me this story about how uh, he had this prosecution of this man up there in Wisconsin, Bill Paul Marquardt and that uh, he had shot and stabbed his mother. Um, He shot her with a 9mm pistol and stabbed her in the neck, just exactly what went through here. That he had been convicted of animal cruelty for stabbing dogs to death in the neck and sentenced to the state hospital. Everything he, he had a green car that he was in Florida during that time period that they had him traveling from Wisconsin to the Florida Keys during the date of our murder. Everything fit perfectly to the point to where I actually thought that he was, that, that somebody had put him up to play in some sort of joke on me. Here is Tyson's version. I say your announcement indicates that the suspect is a black male. And he kind of cuts me off, as I recall, and says, oh, that's been discredited. That's discredited years ago. Okay, so I get a skip, a heartbeat skip in my body. Then I say, okay, these, these two women, they have different last names. Is there any chance they were familially related? He said, well, yeah, it was a mother-daughter. Okay. Now, I have a bloody knife. So I say to him, it says that these women were shot with a 9 millimeter. Is there any chance that they were also stabbed? And he says, yes, repeatedly and interestingly, one of them was stabbed in the head. Okay. Miss Marquardt was shot, she was stabbed, and she was stabbed in the head. I don't like to talk about homicide, but... The skull is is pretty solid, and it's it, you usually would aim for soft tissue if you're trying to kill somebody by stabbing them. Who knows why you would stab somebody in the head? It became, though, in this instance, somewhat of an M.O. When he said that, now he had confirmed at least three things for me, and he had said it in such a way... I honestly think I stopped breathing at that point. When, when he said, he didn't just answer my question in the affirmative. He said, yes, repeatedly, and by the way, one of the victims was stabbed in the head. If I had DNA at that point, it would have been done. But he had all but put a bow on it. Speaking of DNA, the lab technicians in Florida and Wisconsin needed to team up. They needed to conclude that the blood found on Marquardt's knife recovered in Chippewa Falls matched the blood of the victims found in Terrytown. We kept talking, and he told me about the knife that had the DNA from the two related females on it. And uh, we got the Wisconsin lab and the Florida laboratory talking, and pretty much exactly 24 hours later, uh, we got word from the laboratory that that the profile on that knife, to the exclusion of everybody else in the world, was these was our two victims. The search was over. The Sumter County Sheriff's Office found its suspect, or at least knew where he was, inside a mental hospital in Wisconsin. 
media conferences were held. Media from Eau Claire to Orlando jumped on the story. Richard was one of them, and he remembers talking to Tyson over the phone soon after the news broke. What I remember when I talked to Tyson was that uh, you could really hear the determination in his voice, um, even after this arrest had been made, and when he was recounting how uh, he had lost the uh, murder trial in, was, in Wisconsin uh, with Mark Hart. Uh, Mark Hart was acquitted for killing his mother, and how he knew he had a murder on his hands because of the uh, blood evidence that was on that night. And he was found and determined to, uh, to, uh, to find the evidence that would link Mark Hart to, the, you know, to an unsolved murder. And I, I don't remember how many websites, law enforcement websites, or that he scoured, but it was it was a lot of work he had done to before he happened upon the FDLE website to install the uh, the unsolved homicides in uh, in Terrytown. He had a long conversation with Tyson. It was during that conversation that Richard realized a new angle to the story that no one in Florida previously knew. It was a victory from the ashes of defeat type of story. I could tell uh, from talking to him that he considered the acquittal of Marquardt in Wisconsin for killing his mother as, um, I, I would say, a, a personal, I wouldn't say he would consider it a personal failure, a professional failure, but, um, I mean, he was pissed off is the best way I could describe it. And he knew that, that Marquardt, he felt in his heart that Marquardt could kill his mother, obviously. And, um, and you could just hear it in his voice. That, that was what I can remember. Like I said, I'd, I'd never heard someone as determined when he recounted the, the details of how he, you know, lost the trial and then went and, uh, did the, you know, did the legwork online to try to find, you know, um, unsolved homicides that would match, you know, what he was looking for. Um, that, that's what stuck out to me more anything was the determination. There was still some legwork to be done on the part of Florida officials. Brandon and Magrino, along with a couple others from the sheriff's office, traveled to Wisconsin to talk to the suspect and to get his DNA. They got their DNA sample from Marquardt, but he refused to discuss anything about the Terrytown slayings. Brandon described to me the mental hospital housing Marquardt. It was a very eerie, antique, damp place uh, that really kind of reminded you, the, the cells and the area down there kind of reminded you of the uh, Silence of the Lamb Hannibal Lecter where he was being held. That's the, the, what I take away from it. The buildings were very, very old, uh, and uh, he was in a very remote part of the buildings, uh, so... Uh, I, I can't say as to what type of treatment he was receiving, but he was at least being housed there at the, at the state hospital. Richard remembers talking to Brandon on the phone soon after Mark Ward was charged in the Sumter murders. He'll never forget how his voice sounded. I remember Sheriff Farmer, who took and Gary Brandon as well, were both, uh, I had the relief they had. I believe Gary Brandon even I talked to him and he was in Wisconsin. I, I, I can't remember if he was in Wisconsin or where he was, but I remember he was having a celebratory beer and uh, they were, I don't think I've ever heard relief as much as I have in law enforcement officials about uh, solving a case as I did that, that day. Brandon's celebration was interrupted by five more years of bureaucracy. Mark Ward was in a mental institution. That meant an extradition wasn't going to be routine. Then Florida Governor Charlie Crist and then Wisconsin Governor Jim Doyle were unable to agree on one thing in particular. If Mark Ward comes to Florida, gets tried, and is found not guilty by reason of insanity, which state would pay to house him? They were feuding, essentially, over a hypothetical, according to what Tyson told me. But eventually, the feud ended, and Marquardt was transported to the Sumter County Jail. He went to trial in the fall of 2011. He ultimately decided to represent himself. He insisted to the judge that he was very intelligent and could do the job. He tried to convince trial jurors that he had never set foot in Sumter County, let alone Terrytown. That droplet of blood left at the house that matched Marquardt's DNA fully contradicted that argument. 
There were some questions about Marquardt's mental capacity to stand trial in Florida, but ultimately the trial went forward. There were no such warrant controversies, no threatening letters, no change of venue, which actually happened in the Wisconsin trial. And to top it all off, the extra DNA found on the knife in question actually enhanced the prosecution's case, as opposed to handicapping it. The state also avoided one thing it never wanted to do. Call the one eyewitness who remembered the killings to the stand. Paige Ruiz never testified, although her name was on the defense's witness list. In the end, Mark Ward didn't call Paige to the stand either. I didn't want to do it, but I had to if he called me to the stand that day. I just remember having to miss a whole day of school and sitting outside the courtroom with everybody else I was getting called that day, waiting and waiting and waiting to see if he would call me in that day. Luckily, he didn't. Here is Magrino telling me why he didn't include Paige on his witness list. No, no. I mean, I, uh, uh, I made the decision, as I do in every case, you know, um, when, you're, when your case potentially involves a child, my approach has always been, you know, they've already been traumatized once as a result of the incident. And unless I absolutely positively need them in the case, I'm, I'm not going to put a, a, a child under, under 10 years of age on the stand. You know, it's, it's bad enough they live through it, but then to... You get in the courtroom and face the dirtbag again and, and testify in front of a judge and a jury, people that they don't know. That my, my feeling and thoughts is that's just another traumatic incident that unless I need to have them testify, I'm not going to do that. Brandon told me that Paige is now a nursing student and her brother, Trevor, is in college studying accounting. A Sumter jury returned with a guilty verdict. Marquardt got sentenced to death, and he remains on death row. Magrino and Brennan told me that is where they think he belongs. Well, yeah, you know, um, because of the the brutal nature of the killings, you know, it, it's bad enough to, to kill anyone via a gun and then for for extra measure to stab him multiple times the way he did that, it, that that was horrific. But on top of that, you've got two small children that are also in the house. As if our murders here weren't bad enough, then you have him murdering his mother, although he got found not guilty of that, okay? Um, in similar fashion, shooting and, and stabbing, and then the, the hunting dogs. I mean, he, he's, a, he's an individual that clearly, under Florida law, meets the criteria to meet a premature death by lawful legal execution. Tyson gave me his thoughts on Mark Ward's sentencing in Florida. When you're in Rome, you deal with the Romans. So if you go to Florida and you commit homicide, you face their laws. We don't have the death penalty in Wisconsin. And frankly, subjectively, I'm not a proponent of the death penalty. But that's Wisconsin. This is, this is a Florida case. The lingering question in this case is why. Why did Mark Ward kill Margarita Ruiz and Esperanza Wells? Why make up your mind after driving 1,600 miles south of one murder scene to commit two more murders? Why that particular house? This house, uh, with regard to Marquardt, it's right on 50. You know, that's a busy road, even in that part of Sumter. Um, and it just sits back. You can see the home from 50. And uh, th that one, I, uh, I mean, I, I don't have a clue. I, I, I really don't. Brandon said he has come to the realization that certain questions in this case will never get answered. There, there's no telling, and even if he told us something, A, I would be hard to believe it, and we may not understand it, even if he tells us something, which he, I, I truly believe he never will. The randomness of it is what makes it terrifying. Brandon and Tyson, 
have had several conversations since that first one nearly 12 years ago. They recently appeared on TV together. They're forever linked. He was so moved by that loss that he did that research, found us, and solved the case down here, and now he's Mark Quartz sitting where he belongs on death row. Yeah, that is a victory. I mean, he, uh, I guarantee you the people up there, most people up there, maybe other than those jurors, believe he killed his mother. Uh, the, there's no, never been any other evidence that anybody else ever did it. Tyson is now a circuit judge. He remained Chippewa County District Attorney until he was appointed judge in October 2011. Just prior to his appointment, he prosecuted three consecutive murder cases. He went three for three. Looking back on that first loss, Tyson has a much fuller perspective. I would just tell you that anger was not the emotion. Um, disappointment, disappointment myself, disappointment for my community. What am I going to do now? Yes, those are all acceptable, but I don't get paid to get angry. I get paid to do a job. I did the job to the best I could at that time. This case in Florida was unique. It was more than just a cold case double murder. It was more than just a case of an outsider hell-bent on violence, bringing some to a quiet, small town. And it was more than just a tale of persistence. It was memorable because in spite of so much carnage, the final chapter ended on a triumphant note, not only for Tyson and the Sumter County Sheriff's Office and for the Ruiz family, but for the community of Terrytown. For that Sheriff's Department and for that town, it seemed like that closure needed to happen. It needed to happen, you know, long before the arrest was made, and so it was long overdue, and so that's what I remember, is just the the, the, piece, the puzzle pieces that had to come together for that, that arrest to, to, to finally happen. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when I discuss a 30-year-old unsolved case out of Brevard County. Among the suspects investigated for the murder of Kim Howe, a local prostitute, was a disgraced former police officer. My special guest for that episode will be Rockledge Police Investigator Jeff White. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.